Let's pray. Loving Lord, you are our Heavenly Father. Loved us and you've carried us and you've corrected us and you've also been like a mother to us. You've nurtured us. You've held us. And we thank you. We thank you for your presence, for the gift of life and life in you. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would break open our chests and uh, speak to us today. We want to hear from you. Break past our defenses and our busyness and uh, draw us near. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, before we dive in today, I just want to thank those of you who came out to the property on Thursday night. We had a little prayer service out at our property on Thursday night. It was really warm and wonderful. It was about 104 degrees and we built a fire. So we did some s'mores and we prayed and you didn't even need the fire for s'mores. It was so hot, but it was great. We'll do it again sometime and we'd love to see more of you, more of you come. It's a great thing. Thank you for coming. I also want to let you know we are really excited about, if you're visiting with us today, we're excited about what God is doing with our building effort and our giving campaign. We're in the process of of, as a congregation, pledging toward giving, and many of you have been visited and asked uh, for a gift. We also want to hear your opinions about the building, and we've got a significant number of you who have not yet had an opportunity to pledge. A few of you who have not yet been visited, we're getting to you as quickly as we can, but already still with a significant part of the congregation who has not yet pledged, uh, Gateway has pledged to give over $2 million. So uh, thank you, Lord. Yes. Today is the second in our series of lessons uh, that we're calling Spread. We're talking about sharing God's love with others. And I want to read this morning what may be the most familiar passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. John chapter 3. It's an account of an exchange between Jesus and a religious teacher of the day, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And it has in it, this exchange has in it what is probably the most familiar Bible verse, at least in our culture, in the entire Bible, John 3.16. And today we're going to be talking about the message. So we're talking about sharing what God has done in our lives with others. What's the message? What are we sharing? And today that's the substance of our conversation. So I'm going to read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, and you can remain seated. We usually stand out of reverence for God's Word, but today we're going to remain seated. This is kind of a long passage. So John chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, and I would encourage you to turn with me. If you have a phone, find John chapter 3, or if you have a Bible, open up your Bible. If you don't listen along, it will not be on the screen today. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God weren't with him. In reply, Jesus declared, Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And Nicodemus thought, what, what? How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked, what are you talking about? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus replied, I'll tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. 
flesh gives birth to flesh. That happened to you, Nicodemus, when you were born. But the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. It's the work of God, and it has to happen if you're going to have a connection with God. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Look, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And that's the way it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's It's a work of God, and it's a mysterious thing. It's at God's hand. What are you talking about? How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I'll tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. And we testify to what we've seen, but still, some of you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then can you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. This is one of Jesus' favorite expressions of himself, self-identifications, the Son of Man. Okay, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, Jesus is referring to an incident that Nicodemus would have known much about. He was a student of Israel's history. And there was a time when the Israelites were in the desert. They had not yet gone into the promised land, if you know this part of Israel's history. And Moses literally lifted up a snake. God used that to heal the Israelites of a disease that was spreading. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have an eternal kind of life and will have life everlasting. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him isn't condemned. But whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already because He's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Well, in the Bible, repeatedly by the first followers of Jesus and by Jesus himself, we are called ambassadors, which is a rich image, meaning we go places and represent God. We're called witnesses, which means that we're supposed to go places and and tell about what we've seen and what we've heard and what we've experienced. We're exhorted and encouraged to share God's story with others. But let's begin a little parentheses this morning before we get into the message. Let's begin this morning by acknowledging that the sharing begins with listening, not with truthing. Last week, we talked about looking at sharing God's love differently. We asked, what is evangelism? And we said evangelism was based on the Greek word. It's actually kind of a transliteration of a Greek word that means good news. And we use that term evangelism to simply mean sharing God's good news. And we encouraged ourselves to look at the process differently. We did an interesting thing. We looked at a a business author, a guy named Marcus Buckingham. And he talks about what makes American workers satisfied in their jobs, what keeps them engaged in their jobs. And he says there are kind of three circles of engagement. Each of those circles have to be satisfied in order for you and I to really feel engaged in our work life. You have to have confidence. You have to be able to focus and have focus. And you have to be competent. You have to know what you're doing and know what success is. And if all of those spheres are satisfied, then you feel engaged at work. We also noted that only about 25 
percent or less of Americans actually feel fully engaged at work. And Buckingham draws these as circles on a board, and then the place where the three circles overarch one another, where all three of those conditions are satisfied, he calls that the working sweet spot, the place where you are fully engaged in your life at work. You know what success looks like, and you feel equipped to be successful. You're able to focus on those things that most gauge you and those things that that satisfy the deepest part of you and you feel confident that you're doing a good job and confident in what you're doing when all of that is satisfied you know that's your work sweet spot and we said last week what if we thought about evangelism as helping one another and others especially those that are outside of God's love what if we thought of evangelism as helping people find their emotional and spiritual sweet spot the place where their life works most fluidly and most best. They're most engaged with themselves and with God. And then we went further. We said, now here's the thing. In order to do that, it's not just about education. And it's not just about finding out more about ourselves through good friendship or counseling or therapy. There's a truth involved. There's something that you and I need to understand and believe in order to experience our emotional and spiritual sweet spot. But, again, parentheses, it begins not with the truth, but it begins our sharing God's love with others. It begins with how our story interacts with theirs. It's always about a connection. It's always about a relationship. You see this over and over again through Jesus' interactions. It begins with our story. When I'm sharing God's love with Aaron, it begins with my story and Aaron's story and how the two of those connect. It's about what God has done in me and how I then am able to offer that to Aaron. It's not some truth out here that I impose, but it's a truth that has been transplanted, transferred, incarnate, made flesh in my life. And then that spills out into your life. So my story with God interacts with your story without Him. And in that space, I can speak truth. So what truth do I speak? First of all, let's note that this is how Jesus began. Always. Poking, prodding, fishing. A few weeks ago, we talked about an encounter with Jesus and a woman. And uh, he has this intriguing conversation with this woman. He's at the well in the middle of the day. This woman is at a well in the middle of the day. He knows that this is not natural. He knows that she's getting water in the middle of the day by herself because she's a social outcast. So he begins to poke and pride until he identifies what her real need is, what's really going on in her heart, and then he addresses that. We talked a couple of months ago about an incident between Jesus and a young man who was very wealthy. In fact, one of the accounts of him calls him a ruler of some kind. And he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus the home run question. Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? To have a complete, total, full, fully absorbed, all-in connection with God? What do I need to do? And Jesus, instead of giving him four or five principles, well, here's what you need to do and here's what you need to believe, Jesus says, huh, why do you call me good? Poking prodding, fishing, trying to find out what's really going on in this young man's heart. What's the real question? Because often when you and I are confronted with a friend or a neighbor or someone at work, 
the first conversation is not really what the real question is. You know, sometimes the lead question is, oh, I just, I can't believe that whole story. You know, the guy died and resurrected. I can't, I can't get my mind around that. But the real question is, why when I was 17 years old and my mother had cancer and I prayed for God to heal her, why did He do nothing? We have to get to the real question. So the story always begins with, who are you? Tell me about yourself. This is because God is already involved. You and I didn't arrive on the scene first and, hey God, over here. God is already involved with the person that we're talking to. God has already spent time and Jesus is already nurturing Himself in them. Now look, if you're not a Christ follower today, if you haven't yet made the decision to go all in with Him, I want you to know this is true of you also. God is already involved with you. That's one of the reasons you're here today. Okay, but some of us are really good at that part. Some of us are really good at the listening part. Some of us are really good at the tell me who you are part. But we're not good at the truthing part. We don't get to the point of delivering God's message. So what is the message? Well, here's the truth that you and I need to deliver to people who are far from God and to be reminded of ourselves. We'll do this quickly. Number one, first part of this truth, we're a mess. Nicodemus, many, many examples, but Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night probably because of embarrassment. He probably doesn't want the other Pharisees to know that he's actually conversing with Jesus. And we find out later, Nicodemus is pretty clueless about spiritual things, and Jesus wants to establish that, even in Nicodemus' own mind. Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these simple, most basic things. We're clueless. We're a mess. Romans 3.23 says, All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And we've defined sin many times here at Gateway as all those things that we think and do and feel in which we're trying to find our meaning or our purpose or our pleasure apart from God. All of us have sinned. All of us have violated God's best for us. All of us have stepped apart from the way He's prescribed that life must be lived in order for us to be in connection with Him, in order for us to be our best selves. We violate that repeatedly, all of us. We are a mess. More specifically, we're a mess primarily because of the distance between us and God. We're not just a mess because we got bad training. We're a mess because we're at a distance from God. We are disconnected from God. Earlier in that same chapter, in Romans chapter 3, this is the Apostle Paul talking, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. He says this, beginning in verse 10, as it's written, there's no one righteous. Not even one. There's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. He concludes this section in verse 18. Look, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is not even the most basic understanding of who God is and no fear of Him in any of us. It's true. People do bad things to us. But this isn't why we end up as a mess. We don't have to respond badly. I want you to notice how many times people did bad things to Jesus and He never responded badly. Yeah, but He was the Son of God. That's the point. 
He was human life as it's supposed to be lived. You and I don't ever need to respond badly. I'll often tell people who come and talk to me who are sometimes marriage situations, we've had some of that with some of you, or my relationship with Diana, I have to remind myself of this periodically, but those of you who struggle with anger, and some of you do more than others, frequently in conversations with people who've struggled with anger, remind them, you know this is about you. No, it, you don't know what it's like to live with her. She, she makes me angry. No, this is about you. Here's the illustration I often use. Let's imagine you go to a gas station and you're putting gas in the car. You're filling it up and somebody comes over to you randomly. Seems completely random to you. Somebody comes over to you randomly. What are you doing? They begin yelling at you, cussing you out. You've spilled gasoline all over the the concrete. Some of it ran over and got on my shoes. You know, I'm smoking. If I dropped, it would have blown up both cars. And then they punch you in the face. Okay, I want you to know if there were a thousand of us there, we would have a thousand different reactions. Some of us would say, I'm so sorry. Some of us would go into the glove compartment, pull out a revolver and go shoot them. The reaction, the reaction is us. The stimulus is exactly the same. We're not a mess because people have messed on us. We are a mess because we respond badly to what people have done to us. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite Christian authors, has this great analogy of kind of our life apart from God. He describes this scene of this landowner who owns a big estate and he has a dog that he loves. And they have this intimate connection with one another. And several times a day, the master comes out and pets the dog, loves the dog, they play chase together, feeds the dog, grooms the dog, washes the dog. The dog licks and laps and they have this, you know, they bound and play together and it's great, master and dog. You guys love it when I do this, don't you? Yes, yes. And... And then one day the dog is running across the yard of the estate and on the other side of the fence, because the you know, master has trained the dog, you can go anywhere you want to. It's a beautiful, huge estate. At the edge of the, the estate there's a fence and on the other side of the fence is a wild woods. Don't go into the woods, you know, train the dog. Don't go into the woods because you go into the woods, you get lost and I can't take care of you. And there's nothing in the woods. Whatever you want, we'll bring it here. I'll feed you every time you need it. Groom you, love you. (laughs) One day, dog is running, just doing his dog thing. And just on the other side of the fence, he sees a rabbit. And at that exact moment, master's up at the house. Lassie, or whatever the dog's name. And for the first time in their relational history, Lassie is torn. Wants to chase the rabbit, but then turns comes back to the master, and C.S. Lewis makes a profound observation. He says, now this time, with the master, something different has happened. Because there's a hesitation, there's a hitch in the relationship. We're not finished. It gets more profound than this, because a few days later, Lassie's out, he's, oh, he's doing his thing. Rabbit on the other side of the fence. Lassie! Lassie looks, looks back at the master, Knows what the master represents, but really wants to chase that rabbit. So leaps over the fence. I'll come right back. 
chases the rabbit, runs through the woods, can't get the rabbit because the rabbit's quicker, (laughs) and finds he's lost. He can't make it back to the estate. And this is Lewis's point. We are Lassie's children. Lost in the woods. We're away from the master's hand. We're away from his daily feeding. We're away from his grooming. We're away from his care. We're away from the beauty of the estate. We are Lassie's children. We're a mess. Most of you knew that. (laughs) It's not primarily a matter of our or more or better education. It's not primarily a matter of knowing ourselves better or even having better interpersonal skills. It's because we've lived our lives apart from the Master's hand. Our growth, our transformation, our capacity to live at our emotional and spiritual sweet spot begins with and centers on our connection with God. So number one, we're a mess primarily because of our distance from God. So number two, number two big point in our truthing, number two big point is we must be changed. We must be transformed. We must be reoriented. We must become a new kind of thing. We must become different. Because we're a mess. It's not about dressing ourselves up and doing better. I've told you all before, when we first started Gateway 15 years ago, the first thing we did is we spent months, and some of our very early folks went with me. Tim Eagle went with me. I think Rob may have gone with me. I drugged my boys a couple of times. I didn't want people to think I was some weirdo coming to their house. And I would go to the house, knock on the door. They'd answer the door. And you guys were extraordinarily friendly 15 years ago. I don't think it's still true today. But you would open the door and I'd say, hi, my name is Ed Allen. I'd flash my best toothy grin. I, I surveyed Dean and Althea Salami. That's how I first met Dean and Althea. In fact, they were uh, one of the nicest families I met in entire Northern Virginia. <laughs> and if you know Dean and Althea, you know what I meant. Anyway, so that you'd come to the door and I'd say, hi, my name's Ed Allen. I'm in the area. I'm starting a new church and I'm just surveying the area. I want to find out who lives here. Not recruiting. I got seven questions. It'll take less than five minutes. Do you have five minutes? And almost always you said, sure. Okay. How long have you lived in Northern Virginia? What brought you here? Grew up here or work or other circumstances? What do you think we need most in our area? Better roads. Okay. More shopping centers because this was 15 years ago. There was nothing here at the time. You had to drive to Leesburg or Sterling to find something. Okay. Once every hundred people or so, someone would say, we need churches. And I'd go, brown noser. And then I'd write it down. And why do you think most people in our area don't go to church? Well, often people would just start answering. But if they didn't just start answering, what you would say to me is, wow, I thought most people did go to church. No, in fact, less than 35% of people in our area go to church on an average Sunday. Now it's less than 20. Why do you think most people in our area don't go to church? And almost always, 80% of the time I'd say, you'd start confessing. I know we should. I didn't ask why you don't. We're so busy and, you know, all this is just going, okay, yeah, really busy. Um, If you were looking for a church, what kind of things would you look for? So I'd ask this series of questions, and I walked away from that with the distinct impression, and many of you have heard me say this before, before being here, before in Northern Virginia, Diane and I and our boys lived in the inner city in the Boston area, and we served a very poor urban church in a very poor neighborhood. Felt very called there, lived there for 12 years. It was a wonderful ministry, rough neighborhood. And it had some, you know, these were 
terrific folks without middle-class inhibitions, and after a while we burned out. So we moved to Northern Virginia completely to the other side of the tracks, to the wealthiest county in America. Didn't know that when we first moved here. Knocked on all your doors, and you would answer the door, and we would have these conversations. And after months of doing this, I realized something about Northern Virginians. We like our lives. We just want them a little better. We want to raise. Or we want a deck on the back of the house. Or we want to be able to redo the kitchen. We want the kids to get in the gift and talented program. And if that happens, we want to get the college application filled out and get them accepted. I mean, if they could just get in JMU, it would be awesome. We may have to pay somebody, but this would be great. We want our lives, we just want them a little better, and that's not a deal Jesus is willing to make. We have to be changed. We have to be reoriented. We're in the woods being raised by Lassie. Our fur has never been combed. We've never been fed. We have to tear stuff apart. We chase animals. We run it down. We rip them apart. We have to be taken to the master's estate and transformed. 